have personally experienced God bring you from the ashes into beauty, from the graves into gardens? Can you raise your hand where you are? If you've personally experienced that at some point in your life, look around this room right now. Do we not serve a real God? Do we not serve a real God? Yes, we do. And only he can because only he died and rose again. Only he went to a grave for us as a sacrifice and rose again so that his life may spread to everybody here. And that was 2,000 years ago, and he's still changing lives. What a God. What a God. So thank you, God, for the ways that you are at work among us and in each of us personally. God, instead of trying to control you, (laughs) which I have done many times, and that doesn't go very well, God, I pray that instead we put our arms out, our hands out, and we just say, Lord, come do what you want to do in our lives. Even if it means that we walk through a rainy season, we know that the rain is good in the end when it hits the ground. But God, we know that you, you are the Almighty. You are the God of grace and mercy. You are the God of steadfast love who walks alongside of us through it all. And that even if we're in the midst of a hard season right now, God, that you are the one who has the power to bring us through and work it for our good somehow in the way that only you can. So we thank you and we praise you and we drop our expectations for how things are supposed to go. And instead, we pick up the expectation that you're just going to work, that you're going to do something amazing in our lives. We thank you, God, that we today get to celebrate a one-person first service and six this service whose lives have been forever changed because of you, Jesus. All of this is for you and your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, And everybody said, amen. 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 You guys may have a seat wherever you are. Sometimes I wish that the band could just keep playing the entire time. I just, I, man, you guys. It. Well, before I jump in, um, I, I've been doing a lot of celebrating of graduations this weekend. Uh, do we have anybody in here who has just recently graduated high school, college, maybe a master's degree, you graduated some kind? If you could, could you stand up where you are? All right, we got to come back there. Anybody else? Anybody else? You guys right there? Woohoo! Man, thank you. Thank you, guys. We're so proud of you guys. So proud of you. Now, the last two years, Shelby and I have been hosting uh, Yuja Wong in our house. If you haven't had the privilege of meeting her yet, she's, a, she's been a high school senior um, at Covenant Christian Academy, and she, we did, got to watch her walk across the stage yesterday. Man, what, what, a power, what a powerful moment. So we're so proud of her, for all you guys um, who've been working hard and finally reached that stage. And whenever we go to graduation ceremonies, I can't help but to think back to my own that day. Because that's one of those pivot moments in our lives. If we think of our lives like a story, it's the pivot moments that feel like we're the end of one chapter and the beginning of a new one. And graduation is like, it's the end of grade school. It's the beginning of college, career, or at least some measure of adulting, right, we can say. Uh, There's a major pivot moment in our lives. For me, graduation, I, I did not like high school, I'll confess. It was, it was a pivot toward freedom, right? Sweet freedom. But 
as, as we're celebrating our students, we as a church today get to celebrate a major pivot moment. Uh, we got to do a first service for one person and this service for six people who are getting baptized. See, baptism, that's right, baptism celebrates the greatest pivot of all. And, and pivot's probably not even a good word for it, right? It's a redirection. It's a transformation. As Jesus calls it, a rebirth that baptism symbolizes and, and publicly celebrates that because of these people's faith in Jesus and their commitment to follow him, that they have moved, they have transformed, redirected, about face from the old way of living for themselves to now living for Jesus. They have radically shifted from death to life. So baptism is that moment when we get up in front of people, others to not just celebrate that a chapter has changed, but that our whole story has changed. Having died with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, I once was lost, now I'm found, once blind, now I see. And for all those uh, who have been baptized in this room, who will be watching today, this is an incredible moment when we think back to our own baptisms too, don't we? And remember just how much Jesus has transformed our lives. And for those of you who aren't so sure about Jesus or maybe you don't believe at all, as you look at these people's lives and watch them getting baptized, realize that each of them have a story, a story of how God has been transforming them. And if God can transform them, guess what? He can transform you too, no matter how, who you've been, what you've done, or how lost you may feel. And to give us an example of that, before we celebrate these baptisms, we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to look at an example of a story of a man in the first century who no self-respecting person would ever think could change until he met Jesus. And so we've been in this series called Extraordinary, looking at how God uses, in Scripture, ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. But the person we're looking at today is extraordinarily not someone that anyone in Jesus' day would think could be used by God. Yet, the first book in the New Testament is named after him. He's a tax collector named Matthew. And we're going to read in his own words the extraordinary moment that left him changed forever. And as we read his story, I want you to consider your own. Who were you before Jesus met you? And two, how has he changed your life? And if he can... He can change my life, and he can change Matthew's life, and he can change the lives of everybody who just raised your hand a moment ago. Man, he can do that with anybody, can he? So let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. It'll be verse 9 to verse 13. If you want to open the Blue Bibles, we're on page 790. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Let's read about this extraordinarily unlikely <laughs> man named Matthew to ever be used by God. Matthew 9, verse 9. Here we go. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Lord, give us understanding into your word. Help us understand what this means. But not just understand mentally. Will you change our lives? Remind us. Those who have walked with you for a long time, remind us just how much you have changed us. And may joy and gratitude overflow out of our hearts. And for anybody in here who doesn't yet know you, I pray that you make yourself real to them today. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Traitor, criminal, repulsive, scum. These are just a few PG-rated words that some of the Jews in Matthew's day would have used to describe him. See, ironically, the name Matthew means gift of God. But if you look at what he did for a living, he was a tax collector. He did anything but give. He only took from the Jewish people, his own people, to fatten the pockets of Rome and his own. I mean, and if you got the power of Rome protecting you, why not pilfer a little off the top for yourself? But because of what he did, because of what he represented to the Jews, they saw him as complete filth. This guy, like, he is trash. If he is wicked enough to, to take money from his own people and give it to the Roman invaders, which is a betrayal of his own, then he must be just downright evil. And rightfully so, not deserving of the mercy of God. But what we see in his story is just that when we think that we or somebody we know is too broken to be healed or too lost to be found, we meet Jesus. Come on, somebody. But before we meet Jesus, let's meet, let's meet Matthew. All right, he, he, Matthew is the man at the tax collector's booth. That's how we first meet him. And I wonder who he was before Jesus. Some of you guys have probably seen this show, The Chosen, right? Matthew is depicted as the guy behind the iron bars there. That's a Roman centurion in the front. But the show depicts him as uh, an incredibly smart man, but he's probably on the autism spectrum somewhere. Now, the whole autism spectrum part, that's complete speculation. The, the gospel never tells us that. But we do know that he collected taxes for Rome. We also know that he was a Jewish man. And given the amount of Old Testament references in the book of Matthew, he knew the scriptures well. So why would a Jewish man steeped in God's word sell out for Rome? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he had big dollar signs in his eyes. And he would do whatever he had to do in order to get it. Or maybe, perhaps his family was desperate. And he felt that he had to sell out just to survive. Either way, he collects taxes for the Romans now, and he has to live with it. Now, was there big money in it for him? Yup. Was it all it was cracked up to be? Doubt it. Doubt it. See, with all that money, he could have big parties, but no faithful Jew would ever invite him to theirs. And for him... I think in the beginning when he first started collecting taxes, maybe his conscience was fine, but I don't know how anybody can day after day look in the eyes of these poor Galilean farmers and fishermen and widows and continually take money from them without mercy. And how does that not affect you? 
in some way eventually. Because every day he had to go about his day trying to ignore the looks of disgust from his own, own people. Many probably even spat at his feet as he walked by. That he would watch his own people go to synagogue, which he probably went to as a boy, but knew that he was not welcome. And in their hatred of him, faithful Jews probably found some assurance that, well, at least when God's Messiah comes, the promised one, then people like Matthew will be judged without mercy because of how he's treated his own people. How does a guy do that? And endure that. I don't know, maybe for him, he, he justified his actions because, well, this is what society has forced him to do. Or maybe he just got mad at God for putting him in a place and blamed the religious establishment. Or I don't know. There's all kinds of ways we can justify what we do, right? But eventually, I think the inner critic in him was raging. Because you can only have so many parties before you wake up the next morning and all you see in your mind are the scowls of the people looking at you, the, the, the condemning thoughts in your ears, and feeling their hatred in our bodies. No one can keep shutting that out. So eventually, I think that sinks in and it becomes just a self-hatred within him. Perhaps he is an out outsider, traitor, just complete scum. I want to ask you, have you ever believed that because of something you've done or left undone, that you'll always be an outsider with God? Or do, perhaps at least do you believe that whenever God thinks of you, that he puts a little asterisk beside your name? Perhaps you've lived in the shame of past regret or because of something done to you that wasn't your fault. You've left with feeling broken beyond repair. Or perhaps out of desperation you search for satisfaction but been left empty. Or perhaps others have judged you without mercy, which only confirms what you believed all along. You're too broken to be healed, too lost to be found. And perhaps that's exactly where, what Matthew felt too. He made his bed, now he has to lay in it, too lost to be found. In his mind, this is his story. As he's sitting at that tax collector booth before Jesus ever shows up, that's all his story is, the end. Well, that was his story until Jesus showed up. And if anything that I've just described sounds like part of your story, then I want you to tell your self-condemning thoughts to take a back seat for a moment while we meet Jesus. All right, if your inner critic is raging, I need you to tell it just, shh, 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 just a moment because we need to meet Jesus. All right? Because how does Jesus meet Matthew? With all the intense judgment that all the Jews expected? No. Or does he say to Matthew, Matthew, it's fine. You just keep stealing from your people. It's all good. No, of course not. But after meeting Jesus, Matthew is forever changed. Why? Because Jesus meets us where we are, as we are, to call us to follow him into a new life. So let's, let's look at this story. Let's go step by step. First, notice how Jesus meets Matthew where he is as he is. He encounters Matthew at the tax collector's booth. In the act, Matthew's hand is in the cookie jar. He's in bed with Rome right there. 
And Jesus is looking at him. And I don't think Matthew can even look Jesus in the eye. Right? Because he knows what people see when they look at him. At least he believes everybody who looks at him only sees his failure. He's a vile tax collector. That's all the Pharisees, the religious people, ever saw him as. But I want you to notice the subtle wording in verse 9. It says that as Jesus went on from there, he saw not a tax collector, he saw a man named Matthew. He identifies him first as a human being. All the other Jews thought him trash or subhuman. Jesus said, I saw a man. It's one made in the image of God, endowed with the very value of his creator, loved. When Jesus looks at Matthew, what he sees is through the eyes of love always. And while we may only see our failures, Jesus sees who God made us to be. Well, that's first. But what happens next? Follow this progression with me. Then instead of affirming the shame that Matthew felt toward himself, that everybody else thought, he, thought of him, Jesus invites Matthew to get up and follow him. So Jesus meets Matthew right where he is, but not to leave him there. To follow Jesus, Matthew must first get up and leave his old life behind. And this is when the trajectory of Matthew's story changes forever. Because by getting up, Matthew is leaving behind a life lived for himself to now follow Jesus. Because Matthew knows, I can't keep stealing from my people. I can't keep lying. I can't keep living this deceptive life to pad my own pockets and go Jesus' way. I have to leave one to follow the other. And Jesus offers us new life. But first, we must choose to get up and leave the old. And this is exactly what baptism symbolizes. That when we go down into the waters, we are saying, I am, I've died to my old self. And then we get up in the new. Right? Is that after Matthew gets up and follows, though, where does Jesus take him? Matthew has now begun a life-transforming journey with Jesus. But what's the first stop? I would think, well, he's now going to go fast and pray and read the Torah for hours. That's what righteous people do. But Jesus is like, not this time. Instead, I'm going to go to your house and we're going to have a party with your friends. <laughs> Which just makes the religious people crazy. Like, I don't get how this is possible. They drop their jaws because for one, a rabbi eating with a tax collector is like, I don't know, the, the Montagues partying with the Capulets. Right? It's, it's like Batman grabbing a beer with Joker. It's, 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 I don't know, Jason Veritek becoming best friends with Alex Rodriguez. Right? <laughs> like, that, this doesn't happen. Rabbis aren't supposed to go near tax collectors. Like, if they do, they are supposed to condemn them, not go near them. But instead, Jesus goes to his house, to Matthew's lair, right? <laughs> but in that culture, to eat with someone was saying something about that relationship. It was identifying with them as family. To eat with them was an act of peace and joy. And what's beautiful is what we see Jesus do in this one frame with Matthew. 
is but one picture of the overall mission for which Jesus came for. And because it's not just Matthew who's acted as an enemy of God. Oh no, we all have. Because God created us to have a relationship of love and joy with him. With he as the king of our lives and us, his kids. But we acted as traitors against God. We decided to live our own way instead. Yet despite what we've done, the God of all creation took on humanity and entered our world, our home, to identify with us and invite us to belong with him. And in belonging with him, to begin a relationship of joy with the living God. And it is all joy in the party, we see, until the self-righteous Pharisees show up and start judging everybody. Somebody's like, yeah, I've experienced that before. <laughs> but in this odd turn of events, like, what's interesting in the story is that in this moment, where G- when the Pharisees show up, it's the religious outsiders, the tax collectors and sinners, who are now inside with Jesus. And the religious insiders, the Pharisees, who are now on the outside of the party pointing fingers. Isn't that interesting? How did they get that way? Because you see, the Pharisees saw themselves as righteous because they meticulously follow all the law, the sacrifices, they go to church every Sunday, they go to every, they're part of everything, and they saw themselves because of what they do as righteous and therefore given the right to police others. But Jesus says the problem, guys, is that your hearts are devoid of mercy. And, and your whole judgmental stance is stinking up my party of grace. And if we think that we are more deserving of God's mercy and others are less deserving, then we are unaware of the sickness in our hearts. And based on Jesus' response here, he doesn't tolerate that. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us, there is no one righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason why Matthew was on the inside and experiencing this moment with Jesus is because he was aware of his own sin-sick heart and his need for Jesus. But the Pharisees were too blinded in their self-righteous delusion to see their own hearts. But sin is a sickness of the soul that we all share as human beings. But unlike the Pharisees, Jesus, knowing that about us, came to this earth, though he was the righteous one, the true righteous one. He came not as a police officer, but as a doctor, the doctor. And so overflowing with divine mercy, Jesus, the righteous one, gave up his life as the pure and ultimate sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Or to put it in the words a tax collector might understand, that our sin left us with an insurmountable debt before God, which Jesus paid with his life. And so yes, while our sin rightfully condemned us, like Matthew, once we believe and receive what Christ has done for us, we are declared right with God, righteous that our sin-sick souls are washed clean in the waters of God's endless grace. 
For Christ did not come to call those who think they're righteous on their own, but sinners, those who know they're in need of a Savior. So are you trying, still trying, to justify yourself as good enough just because you're better than other people? Or like Matthew, are you willing to fall completely and totally into God's arms of grace so that he can heal you? Because if you think that you're good enough on your own, then you only keep trying to be good enough on your own, and you'll never know the joy of God's grace. A party with Jesus makes no sense. But when we finally receive and trust in God's grace, that's when your story can never be the same. And that is when Matthew's story changed forever. He was once lost, but now he is found. He was once, I imagine, raging with inner hate, but now experiencing the joy and the love of God. And at the center of it all was Jesus. To follow Jesus means that we are never the same. But what's so cool about it is that when we consider who we were pre-Jesus and who we are with Jesus, then our story is really a story about him. So we don't know, we still, we still don't know much about Matthew other than what I said here today. But what we do know from Matthew is a whole account of who Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? That Matthew's gospel was beautifully and meticulously crafted, almost like someone who was really good with details and recording key information put it together. That kind of sounds like the skills a tax collector might have, doesn't it? Yes. But the gospel of Matthew, in our, like at, least, at least the way it's divided up, has 1,071 verses. Only three of them does Matthew mention his own name. Why? Because he knows the one who changed his story forever. And his story is really about Jesus because he was once a debtor before, but now he redeemed in the blood of Jesus. He was once a traitor, but now he's been pardoned because of Christ's sacrifice. He was once separated from God, but now reconciled to God in Christ. He was once an outcast, but now through Jesus brought into God's family, he realizes that all that he is and all that he has is because of Jesus. And the man whose name means gift of God realizes that he's here on earth in order to point to the true gift from God. And what's extraordinary is that now, 2,000 plus years later, we still don't know much about Matthew, but we're still reading Matthew's words about Jesus. Isn't that cool? And that our glory fades with time. But the glory of Jesus, our risen King, endures forever. And if we know that, then we know there's really no greater purpose. There's no extraordinary purpose than using our story as an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. Because if he can change someone like Matthew, and if he can change someone like me, and he can change someone like you, he can change anybody. And when Jesus changes our, our lives, our story becomes an opportunity to talk about him. So what's your story? What's your story? I mean, think about it in these terms. I once was. How do you fill in that blank? But then I met Jesus, and now I'm filling the blank. 
How, do, how would you fill in those blanks? That's your story. I encourage you to write it down, to think through it. Because God might even give you an opportunity to share it. And if, and if you're like me, like I've been following Jesus for about 20 plus years. And I realize in this time that Jesus has never done working in our lives, is he? He is always healing us, always growing us, always working through us. And so if, if you don't remember who you were before Jesus, because either you were too young or it was too long ago, then I want you to think about how has Jesus changed your life recently? Right? Or how is he working in your life now? But if we consider who we were before and who we are now, then we're going to see Jesus right in the middle of that, the living God, and realize that our story is really a story about him. And as we celebrate these baptisms today, we celebrate each of these individuals, but we also celebrate and remember that it is Christ, every single one, who is working to transform their lives. We celebrate him. Amen, everybody. All right, we ready? All right, well, let, let me pray. And then we're going to bring up the first ones. God, thank you so much that you met us where we are, as we are, every single person. God, that we did not climb the stairs of goodness in order to get to where you are. You came down and met us where we are. And you're inviting us into a relationship of joy, endless grace, and love. So Jesus, as we consider our own stories, remind us just how much you've worked in our lives. And as we celebrate these baptisms, these six individuals, God, may we remember our own and remember just what you have done. And may you be glorified and magnified in this place. Thank you for the opportunity we have to share in this moment with the, each of these. In your holy name we pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen.